Well, if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles with me. And I want to ask, if you would, to open them up this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. To 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We are continuing our series of sermons this morning on putting Romans 8.13 into practice. And so even as you're turning to 1 Thessalonians, uh, let me read for you one more time what Romans 8.13 has to say. It says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so let's be reminded afresh that these are not minor things we're discussing here. The stakes are very high. If you do not put sin to death in your life, you prove yourself not to be one of Christ's people. Christians kill sin. And how do they do this? Paul teaches that Christians kill sin by the Spirit. And this means, as we've seen, by faith, Spirit-given faith in the promises of Christ, through prayer, and through that great means of grace, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Faith, Prayer, the word. These are how Christians kill sin. Now, my desire in these most recent sermons has been to help us put Romans 8.13 into practice and to see what it looks like in real life against real sins that you and I deal with every day. We've already looked at pummeling pride. We've already learned about abolishing avarice. This morning we want to learn from the Word of God how we can lose lust. We want to take the sword of the Spirit, the Bible, and get the big picture of how to kill lust in our lives. Uh, Mount Hermon, this is a big issue. Um, We we dare not take it lightly because, uh, as some of us have seen lately in our Sunday school class, the book of Proverbs, that great book of wisdom, teaches us that there's much to say about this subject Uh, have you ever noticed just how much space in the book of proverbs is devoted to solomon warning his son about the dangers of lust and sexual immorality Uh, we often tell families to read the book of proverbs a chapter a day 31 chapters 31 days in most months you can read a chapter of proverbs a day together as a family And often families start to do so and they get to Proverbs 4 and there's this warning against wandering eyes and mom and dad kind of look at each other and they know what that's about. And then they get to Proverbs 5 and suddenly it's verse after verse after verse of pleading. Sons, the the, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the paths of Sheol. We have Solomon pleading with his sons. Oh, sons, listen to me. Don't depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Her ways lead to death. Be warned. And dad and mom look at each other again and 
At least that's over. Chapter 5 is over. And then they come to Proverbs 7. And suddenly, yet again, we have an entire chapter devoted, father to son, about the dangers of lust. And the warnings get even stronger. We're told that the man that gives in to the seductive woman is like an ox being led to the slaughter. Like a deer caught in a trap who will not be able to move until an arrow pierces his liver. And Proverbs 7 ends this way. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low. All her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way of Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. And so the scriptures teach us to teach this sin, among others, as a big deal. And this is all the more so because of how our own society has changed. No longer do you have to go to the house of the seductive woman. No, the seductive woman is in your house, on your television screen, on your computer screen, on your smartphone. As technology has increased its role in our lives, so has the reach of pornography and temptation to sexual immorality. Here are just a few of the most recent statistics uh, from the Covenant Eyes website. 40 million Americans look at pornography on a regular basis. 7 out of 10 men, ages 18 to 24, 7 out of 10 look at pornography at least once a month. 1 out of every 5 searches on a phone is for some kind of pornography. One out of every three visitors to a pornographic website is by women. Covenant Eyes estimates that as many as half of all Christian men and as many as one-fifth of all Christian women in the U.S. have a present addiction to Internet pornography. Mount Herman, did you hear those statistics? One-half of professing Christian men, one-fifth of of professing Christian women have a present addiction to internet pornography. 83% of boys, 57% of girls will have seen a group of people committing immoral sexual acts before they are 18. 69% of boys, 55% of girls will have seen at least two people of the same gender committing sexual acts together before they turn 18. Highest paid author in the world. Highest paid author in the world this past year was the author of the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy, which is now being made into a movie. Uh, the book is sometimes called Mommy Porn or Housewife Porn. It's pornography for wives, literary pornography. These books have become international bestsellers. They've started a whole new flood of. Uh, inappropriate novels coming into our bookstores. And so lust is not just a man's problem, it's increasingly a woman's problem. It's a problem that even older adults have, and it's a problem that is coming into the lives of our children at a very young age. Church, we cannot play dumb here. 
And we cannot bury our head in the sand. We need to be strong on this issue of the sin of lust. So we're going to use our same outline as the last two sermons. First, lust defined. Second, lust described. Third, how Christ makes all the difference. And then fourth, how to walk with the Spirit in killing this sin. First, lust defined. The word lust is a broad word. It refers to more than just sexual lust. Uh, Lust is to desire something which God has not given to you. Okay? In fact, there's a very real sense in which lust is a form of covetousness. You see something that's not yours and you want it. And so a person can lust after food. A person can lust after a a sports car. A person can lust after another person's position at work. Uh, Lust in its most general sense is a failure to be content with God, a failure to be content with what God has given you, And it is desiring illicitly or improperly that which is not yours. Now, there is such a thing as holy desire. There is such a thing as desiring something out of love for God, out of a desire for His glory, while still being content in Him. But that's not what we're talking about. Lust is unholy desire. It's wanting what God has forbidden. It desires that which God has not given you in an impure way. It was present in the Garden of Eden when Eve looked at the forbidden fruit. We're told that she saw the fruit. She inspected the fruit. It was a delight to her eyes. It was the only thing in the garden that was off limits and it was what she wanted. She looked upon it with lust until she took it and she ate. Lust was present at the fall of man and lust has been causing men and women to fall into terrible consequences ever since. Uh, When we think of the sin of lust, we typically think of one person looking at another person in an impure way. Uh, This too is desiring that which God has not given to us. And I get that by putting two passages together, that lust is desiring another person in a way that God has not given them to you as. And so look with me first at 1 Thessalonians 4, and let's begin reading in verse 3. Listen to how Paul describes the sin of lust here. He says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now did you notice? Did you notice that Paul urged these Christians not to wrong their brothers in this matter? In other words, Paul is teaching here that to act in lust towards a woman in the church is not only to sin against her, but it's also to sin against God and to sin against her husband. And why would that be? It would be because she is his wife, not yours. You see, lust is desiring what God has not given to you. 
Why is it okay for a, a husband or a wife to look at each other in desire? And yet it is inappropriate for them to look at others in that way. It is because God has given them to each other. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. Let's see this. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, beginning in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 7, <coughs> verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now this passage teaches us that the husband's body now belongs to the wife, and his wife's body to him, and that they are to give themselves to one another. Why is this okay? Because God has given them to one another. It is He who has brought them into a covenant relationship. It is not sin when a man and his wife look at each other with desire, but it is when a man or a woman look at others with that same kind of desire that it is sin, because lust is impurely desiring what God has not given to you. Now very quickly, because I know some of what I'm going to say this morning is not really going to be understood by the, the young boys and the young girls in this room, I do want to say a word to them. So boys and girls in this room, look up to me for a minute and listen very carefully. Uh, little boys, what God is telling you this morning is that when you get older, you look for a godly woman, a woman of kindness, a woman of joy and love. You should marry a woman like that. You should take her as your wife. You should cherish her and treasure her. And she should be your best friend. And you should be nice to all the other women in the world. But no other woman should be to you what your wife is to you. No other girl should mean more to you than your wife. And little girls, what this passage is telling you is that when you get older... You should look for a godly man, a man of integrity, a man of honesty, a man of wisdom. And you should marry a man like that, and you should love him, and you should love being cared for by him, and you should love spending time with him, and you should be kind to all the other men in the world. But there should be no other man that means more to you than your husband. He should be your dearest friend on earth. Boys and girls, do you understand that? Does that make sense? Okay. Well, let's move to lust described. Lust described. And my goal here is to pull back the veil so that you can see why this is such a vile sin. I'm going to make four points because I want to get quickly to the practical help, so I'm going to go quickly. Number one, lust is vile because of what it says about God. Lust is vile because it what it says, sorry, to God, what it says to God. And what does lust say to God? Lust says, I'm not satisfied with what you've given me. You've saved my soul. You're giving me heaven. 
You've given me so many good gifts in this world. You've given me the joy of knowing you, which is the best gift of all. But that's not enough for me, God. I want what is forbidden. I want what you have said is off limits for me. To choose to indulge in in lust, to involve yourself in pornography or sexual immorality is to say that you are not content with what God has given you. You don't trust that He knows what is best for you. Any boundaries that God sets in your life, He sets because He loves you, He cares for you, and He's saving you from harm. And so to ignore His commands is to say that we don't trust Him that we believe his boundaries are not right. And yet, what is it about God that we would not trust? Do we doubt that he knows what he's doing? Do we doubt that he loves us? Do we doubt his wisdom? This is the God who would be just to condemn us. But in his mercy and his love, he he has saved us and he has made our eternal welfare his concern. Will you really turn from the Father who loves you so deeply and do things that grieve Him and spurn His love? Number two, lust is vile because of what it does to you. Lust is vile because of what it does to you. What does it do to you? Well, one, it weakens your self-control. See, self-control is your defense against all temptation. But every time you indulge in lust... It makes it a little bit easier to give in to sin the next time. Self-control is a wall to protect you against every sin. But every time you indulge in lust, you you knock another brick out of that wall. Uh, The Puritans taught that all of the appetites are connected. So when you weaken self-control in one area of your life, you weaken self-control in every area of your life. Lust also feeds your pride. It's, it's very selfish and self-centered. Have you ever thought about how utterly self-centered pornography is? You don't have to care about that other person. No promises have to be made. It's only about you and what you want. Uh, sexual intimacy is a gift that is to be enjoyed as, as the fruit of loving, sacrificial, generous, cheerful relationship. But there's no relationship in pornography. It's just all about you. Therefore, as lust cultivates greater selfishness and greater pride in your life, it makes you more and more unsuitable to God for serving others. God wants to use humble instruments. God wants to use loving, giving, sacrificial instruments. He draws near to the humble, but He resists the proud. Yet lust creates this sense of self-centered pride, of selfishness in your life. You simply cannot expect to be of much use to God. You cannot expect to be a, a, a blessing in the lives of others, a benefit to His kingdom if you are cultivating pride and selfishness through lust in your life. Indulging in lust can destroy your reputation. The gospel you stand for can be dishonored. Remember that everything done in the dark will at some point be brought to the light. 
and that there are no sins hidden from God. And what's done in secret will not always be secret. Remember what lust does to you. This makes it vile. It is, it's poison. Don't drink poison. Number three, lust is vile because of what it does to the other person. I'm thinking here about the person that you're looking at in a lustful way. Uh, whether it's a person standing before you, whether it's a person on a screen, whether it's one of those inappropriate posters at the mall. Rather than loving your neighbor, when you're lusting, you are treating this person as something for you to use. Uh, lust degrades people. They become tools in your mind. They become a means to achieving what you want. Mount Hermon, do you know just how terrible the pornographic industry is and how many lives have been utterly destroyed by it? Do you really want to support something like that? I remember a comment that John Piper made one time. He said, how many of those girls on that computer screen have godly grandmothers back home crying their eyes out because of the granddaughter they love so much and the fact that she's given herself to this kind of life. You see, those people are real people and they have souls and they have God-given dignity and they were created in God's image and you have no right to treat them as anything less than that. And then number four, lust is vile because of what it says to your spouse or to your future spouse. What does lust say to your spouse or your future spouse? It says, you're not enough for me. It says, I'm not satisfied with you. It says that I'd rather indulge in self-centered lust rather than put in the time and the effort to woo you and pursue your heart. I'd rather have an imitation of the real thing than to enjoy the God-centered drama of pursuing you in happy service and sacrifice and gentleness and kindness. Lust is a forsaking of your spouse or your future spouse. It is, as Jesus taught, adultery in the mind and in the heart. Let's move to our third heading. How does Christ make all the difference? And you should know these five points. First, Christ set the example for us. Folks, Jesus Christ was a real human being, a real man that faced real temptations. Jesus knew what it was to be tempted towards lust, but his highest passion was to do the will of his Father in heaven. He was driven by a higher love, a higher delight. He was not self-centered. He was God-centered. He set the example of a life of doing all things for the glory of God. And that's where he found his joy. He valued purity and cleanliness for God's sake. He knew that if he gave in to sin, it would destroy his very mission on earth. And in the same way, we should follow his example. When we give in to sin, it harms the mission that God has given us in this world. We do not have a Savior who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Our Savior can sympathize. He was tempted too. He knows your struggles and he's right there with you in the struggle. I have no doubt. I have no doubt in my mind there is somebody here this morning who was in bondage to pornography. 
The statistics are just too overwhelming. And you need to know that your Savior sympathizes. He is with you. He has seen your struggle. Learn from His example. Read the Gospels. See how Jesus overcame all temptation because He had a higher love, a higher passion, a higher satisfaction. Second, Christ on the cross took the punishment that sinners deserve. All of our sins of lust were nailed to the cross of Christ. The hell that we deserve because of our sins of lust were born by Christ on the cross. Christ never experienced one moment of giving in to lust. But he sure felt the judgment of the lust of many on the cross. So you are forgiven, Christian. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, don't let the shame of lust or sexual immorality paralyze you. Yes, be ashamed of your sins, but then see the atonement of Christ for what it is. And if you have trusted Him, you are forgiven. Forgiven indeed. Third, Christ has promised you a day when you will be holy. Uh, Here is the hope you have before you. You will not always battle with this sin or any other sin. Uh, You will be made perfectly and fit for heaven. Live in the reality of that hope. Live in the eager expectation of that day. Fourth, Christ by the Spirit is making you holy now. Which means that if you're a Christian, the Spirit is at work in your soul right now to rid every trace of lust from your life. You're not fighting this alone. The Holy Spirit is fighting lust in you. Your job is simply to walk with the Spirit in that battle. And then fifth, Christ by His Spirit through His Word is causing us to know His love for us. We don't fight lust out of a desperate attempt to make things right with God. Just the opposite. We fight lust in the calm assurance that we are Christ's and He is ours and we are loved. We are secure in Christ's love and that is where we find our strength to fight. And so I say again this morning, as I said last week, unbelievers in this room, come to Christ. Jesus makes all the difference in this fight. Your lust will take you to hell along with your other sins. Your lust will cause you to be a curse to others in this world. But you can find freedom from guilt and you can find freedom from the power of this sin by coming to Christ, trusting Him, and then learning from Him how to walk in this world. Well, finally, our last heading, how do we walk with the Spirit in killing lust? We know that the Spirit is using the Word to kill lust in our lives. And we know that He is affecting our wills so that we're not just hearers of the Word, but we want to be doers of the Word. So when we go to the Bible, what do we learn there from the Spirit about how to kill this sin of lust in our lives? Let me mention just a few biblical points number one the spirit teaches us to be honest about our depravity the spirit teaches us to be honest about our depravity 
In other words, we cannot pretend that any of the seven sins in this series that we are talking about are other people's sins and not our own. Have you already thought through that list of sins? Those seven sins we're preaching on? And did you say, "Mm, I really need that one and that one? I don't need that one so much. Did you think through that way? Folks, are there any of those seven sins that we are not vulnerable to? Sure, we all have strengths and weaknesses, and sure, some are going to be more your Achilles heel than others. But folks, we are vulnerable to all sins, and so we don't want to be naive. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, what does that mean practically? How do you put that into practice in your life? Well, it means you put filters on your computers and your smartphones. It means you, you put filters on your computers and your smartphones, not just for your kids' sake or in case the nephews and the nieces come around or in case the grandchildren come around. You put them on for your own sake. I fear that there are a lot of dads who know how to put filters on their computers for their kids' sakes, but they also know the passwords of how to disable them when they want to. And yet sometimes it's the dads or even sometimes the moms who need the filters more than the kids do. And so we need to be honest about this, even when it comes to movies. So often Christian parents will say, this movie has some uh, sexually inappropriate material in it. It's not fit for the kids. The kids go to sleep and the parents watch the movie. Friends, if it's not fit for the kids, is it fit for us? Is that going to strengthen you in your walk in this world? Is that going to be edifying to you? Do you trust your heart and mind so much that you will put scenes before your eyes that are inappropriate and trust yourself not to fall into temptation? There's already enough temptation in this world without us tempting ourselves. So you need to be honest about your own depravity. Number two, the Spirit teaches us to flee sexual immorality the spirit teaches us to flee sexual immorality yes there are times when christians are to stand up and fight against a temptation and then there are times when the christian is to turn tail and run when we look to the bible concerning this particular temptation the advice is always one way it's flee it's never stand up and fight it's always flee We are to flee like Joseph when Potiphar's wife threw herself at him. We are to flee as David should have that night when he saw Bathsheba. We are to flee like an ox who doesn't want to be led to the slaughter, like a deer that doesn't want to have an arrow pierce his liver. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. You don't put the movie in and then plan to fortify yourself against the temptation. No, you, you flee. You don't browse the internet idly thinking I can withstand whatever comes my way. No, you you flee. Jesus said to do everything you can to separate yourself from this danger, even if it means plucking out an eye or cutting off your hand. We are new creation spirits in old creation bodies. We must practice self-denial, self-control. And when it comes to this particular temptation to lust, we're always to flee not as cowards okay we don't flee as cowards we flee as courageous soldiers who know that it does nobody any good to dance around a landmine okay 
Number three, the Spirit teaches us to have a high sensitivity to danger. The Spirit teaches us to have a high sensitivity to danger. We should not play fast and loose with any sin. And we shouldn't play fast and loose with this sin. That is, as soon as we sense any hint of it, the sirens should go off in our mind and we should take action. So if you're at the beach, if you're walking through the mall, wherever you are, if you, if you suddenly see that, that person that's dressed inappropriately, what do you do? You don't treat it as a harmless thing. It's not. It will do damage to your soul. Lust turns the soul in on itself and makes you more selfish, more self-centered, more prideful. It weakens your armor against other sins. When that moment of temptation to lust comes, we must react quickly. As a person who knows the danger, as a person who has been enlightened by the Spirit, the world doesn't see the danger, but you're not of the world. You've been informed. Your eyes have been opened. How sensitive are we to be to this temptation, to flee from it? Paul says in Ephesians 5.3 that sexual immorality must not even be named among us, meaning there should be not a trace of it in our lives. One translation says there should be no hint of sexual immorality among you. It's like a dirty diaper, far away as possible. Number four. The Spirit teaches us to use the church, to use the church. The truth is, this is one area where we often need help and accountability from others. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, that does not mean that you have to confess your lust problem or any other problem to every person in the church. But it does mean that you need to have people in your church family who are praying for you in this regard. Brothers helping brothers in Christ. Sisters helping sisters in Christ. Church, this is one of those issues that should be regularly in our prayers for one another. We pray for the purity of this church, the purity of our doctrine, but also the purity of our living. How often do you pray for the purity of others in this church? That we would be a clean church, a pure vessel ready to be used by God mightily in this community. If we're a filthy church, we shouldn't expect to be used. Pray that we will be a church growing in self-control, that we can be less selfish and more generous because lust works against love and we want to be a church full of love. Therefore, we must pray against lust. Finally, number five, the Spirit teaches us to find our satisfaction in Christ. This is the highest and the best tactic that the Bible gives us to fight lust. It's the key to defeating all sin. It's finding more delight in Christ. So much delight in Christ that we wouldn't dream of turning from Him to find pleasure anywhere else. Every good gift we have is a gift from His hand. Sexuality, when it's embraced rightly and used rightly, is a wonderful gift that causes us to love Jesus more, that causes us to marvel at Jesus and His love for His church. 
But lust takes this gift and, and, and twists it into something ugly. So the more our hearts are in love with Christ, the more we're going we're to want to stay away from anything that dishonors him and twists the message about his love. Marriage is about Christ and the church and the amazing love that Christ has for his church. Sexuality exists to say something about Christ's love for his church. Lust dishonors that. It blasphemes that. It preaches lies about Christ. For Christ's sake, because you love him, don't have anything to do with lust. It's an enemy of Christ. It's opposed to the one who gave his life for you. The more we love Jesus, the more we will grieve over our brothers and our sisters in Christ who are harming themselves in this sin. We will long to see them rescued from the snares of addiction. We will do all that we can to come alongside them, not in judgment, but with a real desire to help and to encourage. Mount Hermon, let us drink deeply from the fountain of living waters. Let us be satisfied in Jesus. Let us live in the reality and the security of his great love for us. And let us wage war against the sin of lust in our lives that would not only harm us, but it would harm our families, our church. It's killing our society. And it would bring harm to the name of Christ. So let's lose lust for Christ's sake. Amen? Let's pray.